Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, All right. Hey, everybody. How are you? This is The Other People Show. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. This is going to be a good one. Today on the program, my guest is Marcy Dermansky, author of the novel Hurricane Girl. My writing teacher's in graduate school, Frederick Bartholomew. It kind of blew my mind at the time. He's like, why don't you start your books? Not just to me, he tells everyone on, on your first line. Like, if this is somebody's, like, 50th anniversary party, why wait till, like, the middle of page two? Tell us on the first line. And so I do try to do that in my books. Like, the first paragraph, it's already starting. Like, you don't want to take your time. And that's not because people tell you that an agent reads the first three pages. It's because that's what's better for books. Is you have to start right away. All right, there we have it. That is Marcy Dermansky. Her new novel is called Hurricane Girl, and it is available from Alfred A. Knopf. This is Marcy's first time on The Other People Show. Very happy to have her here. That conversation will be happening momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Texas Tech University Press. Texas Tech University Press is proud to announce a new publishing collaboration with the Diasporic Vietnamese Artists Network, or DVAN. DVAN promotes nonfiction, fiction, and poetry to empower Vietnamese artists. The first publication from TTUP and DVAN is the novel Constellations of Eve. In this philosophical fable of art and fate, Abigail Wynne Rosewood paints a world that floats above our own and contours the infinitesimal moments that shape who we love, over whom we obsess, and how we decide what to live for. The book is available now. To learn more about Constellations of Eve by Abigail Wynne Rosewood or to learn about other Divan books, visit ttupress.org. 
This episode is also made possible by Tenants Cove Writer's Retreat. Are you a writer? Are you working on a book? Do you need to get book work done? Are you looking for a concentrated period of time in which to make great progress? If you are this person, you should check out Tenants Cove Writer's Retreat. It's a new retreat and workshop that offers rustic and rural glamping, as well as a warm and inspiring creative community. It is all happening this summer on a nature preserve of 150 acres in New Brunswick, Canada, from August 7th through the 14th. That's this summer, August 7th through the 14th. The retreat is hosted and moderated by Melissa Scholes Young, author of the novel Hive, and Peter Von Zagazar, author of the memoir The Looking Glass Brother. On-site tuition plus room and board is $2,500, and there are four spots available. There might be less than that at this point. This is a limited opportunity retreat. It is intimate. Participants can also arrange a full manuscript review for an additional fee. At Tenants Cove, they are looking for serious writers who seriously want to go into retreat and make some big progress on their writing. For more information, visit TenantsCoveWriters.com. That's T-E-N-N-A-N-T-S CoveWriters.com. And join the retreat this summer from August 7th through the 14th. One more time, the website is TenantsCoveWriters.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so the guest today is Marcy Dermansky. She has a new novel out on Knopf. It is called Hurricane Girl, and it is generating a lot of buzz. This is Marcy Dermansky's fifth novel. Her other books are called Very Nice, The Red Car, Bad Marie, and Twins. She has received fellowships from the McDowell Colony and the Edward Albee Foundation. She also won 
the Carson McCullers Short Story Prize. I am very pleased to have Marcy on this show. I've known her for a while, many years. Known of her, known her. She worked with me a bit on my own book. So just great to have her here and to get a chance to celebrate the publication of this new novel of hers. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Marcy Dermansky, and the new book, One More Time, is called Hurricane Girl. I don't write that often is how it feels like. I feel like I spend more time not writing than writing, so sometimes I think I should have written more novels. I don't know. Okay, so this this, uh, ratio, do you feel like there's something creative happening in the downtime or in the fallow periods? Like, are you... Are you like consuming a lot more? Are you reading a lot more? Are you ruminating on what you might do and trying to like gather information and ideas? Or is it truly just like you're off in another place and then eventually you come back and start getting creative again? Right. Your first answer sounds better that I'm ruminating <laughs> and, I'm, and I want to just say yes to that. But I think sometimes that when I finish a book, I just feel like done and I don't I don't have new ideas that come right away, and I'm always really scared to begin something new. And so I think part of my writing process that I was—I always try to avoid at the end of every book, but I never do, is I have to not write for so long that I start to feel really like, bad. Like, why am I not writing? And then I start again, and then it, it all works out. So what is this, yeah. uh, the fear of beginning? Like, it's just, it's the feeling of, oh, I don't have any ideas. What am I going to do? It's the not. Yeah, yeah it's, it's that blank page I find really overwhelming. And then, I, and then I actually love writing, but I just hate starting things. And then I always wonder, is this really worth what I'm going to work on? So I just put too much pressure on it and I don't begin. And then yeah. is there a way that your novels tend to begin? Is there a common thread? Um. I just I just feel like it's right and I just keep going. I don't think there's a common thread. Okay. And yeah. it's an intu it's an intuition, like it's just intuition. I don't have an outline. I don't have I mean, usually I always start and I don't know what I'm gonna write and I just type. And a lot of times I just type and I'll type for an hour, an hour and a half, and I'll be like, Oh, that's dumb or that's not anything and then I just won't I'll, I I might save it but I won't open it and then I'll start a new day and it's a new blank document and a new blank document and sometimes it turns into journal writing and then I finally write something. I'm like, Oh, okay, I'll just keep going on this and I don't really know that it's gonna be my next novel till I'm about forty pages in. Okay, because like this is the thing for me that I find challenging is sustaining energy over the course of a long project over the course of time. And so, you know, in whatever experience I've had writing novels, I find that I think I need to have a real emotional investment in the material in order to get going and stay there and and see it through. And maybe that's true for everybody, but I sort of suspect, and I'm wondering if this is the case for you, that there are writers out there who don't need to have like some deep personal emotional investment, they can actually just be like super into the story and like entertained by it. <laughs> is that the case or am I, or is the way that I do it more like more close, you know, closer to the truth for you? I think the way you do it is more closer to the truth for me, except I can't live with things for that long because I get really frustrated. Like I know with your, your last book, which I loved, it took, you did many, many drafts and you worked so hard on it. And I just, I get to a place where if I overwork my material, it feels dead to me. And so I can't, I can't work on something for too long. And so, but I have to love it. And I feel like this book is complete fiction. I mean, that could jump over other questions, but I feel like more and more like details from my life, it just makes 
the work more relevant to me. Like if I put my coffee cup into the book that I'm writing, it really pleases me. And all through all through Hurricane Girl, there's so many little tiny, tiny pieces of me that most people won't recognize and they're not necessarily significant. Like my water bottle is in that book. And so, and it just really makes it more meaningful to me when I do that. Yeah, no, I kind of sensed that. Like there were Easter eggs in there or like little... So many Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I, but I, like, I think maybe because I'm a writer, I could feel it or I noticed really? it more and I... I could imagine you having fun with it. You know, it's just like yeah, a ni- nice. Yeah, I love it. You get these like bing, bing, bing moments where it just makes you so happy. Like I actually like love to write when it's going well, which is why it's so surprising to me there are so many periods when I'm not because writing is just so great, I feel like. I, I think like what you said earlier about how if you, like there is such a thing as overwriting or working on a project too long to the point where it becomes dead. And that was certainly the case for me in like failed iterations. And then in the iteration that wound up working, which is an extension, I guess, or a, I guess it's connected to the others in some ways, but really it's its own thing. And it came out relatively quickly. And I feel like this is the case most of the time with writing in any form is that when it's going well and it's working, it's not that it isn't arduous and it doesn't take some significant time to write a book, but it does tend to kind of shoot out of you (laughs) yeah Yeah, it really has been the case of all of my books and and there are times when I'm struggling and um, I don't know what to do with the plot and I just forge ahead and the times when I'm struggling and I don't really respect it but keep on trying to write anyway which seems like great advice I keep on working those are always the pages that are just bad that are boring or forced and those are the pages and, and I cut a lot of work a lot of times like I cut a lot of pages from this book if I don't really feel it, what I'm writing is, it's so easy to write another sentence in a paragraph in a page. It's so easy to do, but if it's not working for you, sometimes I think forcing yourself isn't the best thing because the material just isn't good. So with Hurricane Girl, I think I read, maybe it was in the acknowledgments even, just plays, there were times when you felt blocked or you felt like you were kind of like lost in the text or lost in the narrative. A Uh, little bit. Yeah. What were there things that you did that helped you find your way back in, or was it just kind of waiting it out? Sometimes you just have to wait it out. I find, you know. I'm, I mean, in this case, it wasn't even waiting it out. I just sort of forged to an ending, and then I have, I don't have a lot of readers when I work. I have one reader who's a friend, and she just says everything is wonderful, and I just love her because I feel like <laughs> praise is just so important to my writing. I just rely on it so much. And then my other reader, which is, is a little tricky, is my agent because we've just been together since 2005, like my whole career. And so he reads it, and he was really, really enthusiastic about this book, but he actually said, is that the end? He's like, you can't end it this way. <laughs> you have to make something happen. And he doesn't tell me what to do, but he's just like, look, you have this huge thing happen, and you don't address it. And I don't know if he knew I was going to do that, but after I talked to him, I cut 100 pages. And then I just wrote a completely different direction. And then I wrote the end. And then it was just right. You know, then I didn't have to. I mean, I revised it like sentence level. But once I went back to it and made the big thing happen that needed to happen, then we were good. It's a lot of pages. Yeah, especially when your book is only 240 pages. So. But <laughs> I think, I don't know, I, I was saying this to you before we came on the line. Yeah. This book, I tore through it. Thank and you. it's a pleasure to read and it goes down easily. And yeah. I always appreciate that because what it makes me feel like is I feel like the author did the work. Mm-hmm. I'm not having to like grind it out to read it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like I I'm, I'm, I'm inhaling it. And that's what you always want, I feel like, as a reader. 
or at least that's what I want. Right, I want that too. There are too many books where you put them down, and then it's just difficult to put them back up. And I never, I never want that to be the experience with my work. But it's also like the speed of the read, or something like it's so strange because it, it, the words are laid out on the page no differently than they are in any other book. But for some reason, I'm reading them more easily, and I think that might have something to do with the prose style and just the craftsmanship. Like that's an interesting question to ask. It's like why do some books? feel like they're happening in slow motion for me. I guess maybe they're just not speaking to me. Whereas, you know, this book and, and the work that you do and maybe the way that you write, that music, you know, just kind of goes down easily for me. I think, I mean, I really do. It's not quite music, but I really do care a lot about how my sentences sound. Like they're short and I repeat things. And there just has to be a rhythm to it that that feels important when I'm writing. Like I can hear it when, when I'm working. So I don't know if other writers write that way or... Well, yeah. I wanted to talk to you about this because the word that I was, the word that kept occurring to me as I was reading this book was offbeat. Oh, and yeah. It, that's a musical word. And Is it? I, yeah, I think so. Because, yeah, like, uh, yeah. offbeat in terms of its humor, but also offbeat. That's how I think of it. Yeah, but I think also offbeat in terms of, like, the music of the prose, like, not to get precious mm-hmm. about it. But I want to say I was reading something about Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and how he, like something like one of the appeals of his music is that he's always singing like just like a, a millimeter behind the beat, mm-hmm. but yet it's always right there. Like his timing right. is actually excellent, but it's just like a little bit off the beat. Right. And I I was thinking about that for some reason as I was reading because I was like, wow, there's this is having like an interesting effect on me, like the music of this language, yeah. uh, the voice of the book. And then the other person that I was thinking about as I was reading your book was Hemingway. Really? Not not because it was like a one for one yeah. like comparison, but just because there's a clarity and simplicity to his prose that I think mm-hmm. y- your book shares at least to some extent. There's a your writing is clear as a bell and the sentence yeah. the, the sentence constructions are pretty it's like short, declarative. It's deceptively simple and there's like a, a strange mm-hmm. and very personal music to it. And yeah. It makes me sit around going, well, how did she do this? Because right. it, it's the kind of it's the kind of language that might trick you into thinking it's easy to make. And I, I feel yeah. like having written a lot that I know better. You know, these are carefully rendered sentences and the simplicity of them is deceptive. I've read reviews of your work when it's talking about the comedic effect that you achieve, which is also, you know, it's this offbeat humor. The the prose and this is not a pejorative is sometimes described as like this flat. It's like it's like a, it's got kind of like a deadpan effect. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you're not really winking much at the reader. Yeah. Um, but there is like an kind of an odd offbeat humor to it. You talk a little bit about your intentions in that department and like, is there anything you can tell us specifically about how you do it, you know, to like make... I wish I, I, wish I knew how I do it. Like, my brother is a stand-up comedian, and I can't try to be funny. Like, I can't... And in real life, I'm always cracking jokes, and they just sound too much like I'm not. And so it really just seems like I'm saying sinister things about people, and I get odd looks all the time. Like, it works better on the page than it does... In real life. Yeah. And so I guess I have to be funny. I mean, in this book I'm doing, like, people... I didn't even really realize that I was writing about trauma, but I'm always being funny, and I don't... And I don't 
know how to do it. So I can't like give like a writing class, like how to write humorous fiction because I just don't know. And I feel like that's a lot about writing is if I knew how to do it, I don't know that I couldn't do it. Like it just comes. I want to talk about genre and like cross pollination. Okay. Because I want to say in your last book, Mm -hmm. very nice. You were drawing on soap opera. I love, yeah. Right? Like it was like soap. Like, I, I didn't even hide it. I was a little bit embarrassed because I was sort of outing myself as somebody who had watched General Hospital for a really long time. But yeah. Listen, <laughs> I grew up on that stuff. I grew up yeah, in, a, okay. in a, my, I had sisters and a mom and in the 80s or whatever, like we used to have like a VHS machine and my sister would tape all my children. Mm-hmm. Well, how did it, I even know like the order in the day in which they aired? That's it was funny. like it was like all my children, Days of Our Lives, Another World, Santa Barbara, General Hospital. Oh, General Hospital came last. It's a, it's the only one still on the air, I think. So really, God, I mean, yeah, well, one other soap opera. I think there's almost none left. But my brother used to watch General Hospital because that was he went to summer. He went to a tennis camp, and that was how he picked up girls. Was he would sort of watch it in the lounge with all the girls, and he met he, and that's how he met girls that way. And so he came home from tennis camp and watched General Hospital, and then my sister and I started watching it too. Yeah, I mean, I grew up. I sometimes wonder, like, well, those were like kind of central narratives of my childhood. If I'm being yeah. honest, I mean, I really watched a lot of soap operas, and I remember, for example, when Stefano DeMero pushed Roman Brady off of a cliff in Days of Our Lives <laughs> in like nineteen yeah. nineteen eighty four. Yeah. Like Bo and Hope were in like a dinghy. I want to say, and they saw him fall, and they were like, Roman! <laughs> you know, it, was, it was really hardcore for me, because I mean, I was like so invested in these characters, you know, and so, and then there was like, what, John Black, Patch, there are all these characters that I remember from this era, but... Um, they taught us narrative, in a way, I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know, I don't know how well, but here, yeah. we, here we are. There's I guess. really terrible writing, <laughs> awful plotting, but they also go there, I guess, so... Well, they go there, and they, they do like move you they move the story along and there is obviously a lot of like melodrama and emotional content it's like maximal Mm -hmm. in that way and maybe there's maybe there's something to learn from that as a literary fiction writer Mm -hmm. um and i think really any kind of storytelling can be instructive depending on what we choose to take from it and the question that i'm building towards with respect to hurricane girl has to do not with the melodrama of soap operas which you've already sort of done in your in a previous book but with the collision between horror and comedy. Yeah. And I'm wondering how explicit your attention to like horror movie plot and structure and tropes was in the rendering of this book. I know you said you don't outline. Yeah. So so were you just kind of intuiting and feeling your way through this or was it something you started with where you were like, wow, I really love horror and I want to try to blend this in. Yeah, no, I actually really dislike horror. I mean, a long time ago, I, I watched Scream because I, I think I had a crush on Nev Campbell, of all things. But yeah, um, I think horror is really scary, and I don't know why people people want to watch it. And it really, I think it's just like whenever whenever most writers who are writing well, when you put something into a book, you end up using it. And this is, I've been writing too often, I feel like, about writers as characters. Like, maybe I need to do some research. So in, in, the, in Hurricane Girl, instead of making her a writer, I made her a screenwriter, which is still a writer. <laughs> right. So I didn't really change it. But I made her into a horror writer. And all of a sudden, I was just like, oh, you have to use this. And so when she's, it just became so exciting when I realized I didn't really know that the cameraman was going to hit her on the head. That's a big spoiler, but it's on the back cover of the book until he did it. But then I just kind of got this like sort of like tingle, like, oh, I'm writing horror in 
this book. And so, but it's not a genre that I, I know because I, I just find these movies too scary to watch, honestly. I used to watch a ton of them when I was an adolescent, which I think is like, like, you know, like that's a normal era yeah. for a person to be into horror. I've, I've read that there's like teenagers, right? In the houses and the virgins always get killed. So yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like yeah. built for adolescence, but as you know, yeah. nowadays, like I cannot imagine watching a horror film before, like before going to sleep or something. Yeah, <laughs> It's too much. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the, like everyday life is horrifying enough. You know, I don't need, I don't need any like steroidal horror, you know, to tide me over. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, with these kinds of subject subjects in mind, you know, soap operas, horror films, you know, more broadly speaking, um, I think what we're talking about is pop culture. And mm -hmm. I feel like going back to when I first got to know you or knew of you, yeah. I mean, it's, we, we go back a ways. I was thinking about this. Like we, we go back to when we were both starting out. I mean, you and I yeah. are contemporaries, I think. And, and uh, I remember MySpace days when Twins was coming out. That's where I got started. I was one of the first. I felt like, yeah, I, I was obsessed with it. I was just like, I'm going to get 3,000 followers. And yeah. All yeah. I mean, same kind of era. We were coming into publishing and our agents were probably like, you should try this, you know, social yeah. media thing. We were right at the beginning of social media. Yeah. But I remember you writing film criticism, if, mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm recalling correctly. I so I want to I hear you talk about that, like how you started out. And like, I want to hear you talk more about your relationship to pop culture and pop culture narratives and how you think it might still inform the work that you do as a fiction writer. Yeah. I mean, I did, I used to love film and, and, and I actually feel like a real loss that I don't really watch it that often anymore. I mean, since COVID I've stopped going to the movies, but even, I mean, even with streaming it at home, I feel so much more drawn to TV and to one hour narratives. And I don't, quite understand why and what's changed and I feel very fidgety when I watch films but I really feel like with my second novel which was called Bad Marie I was in a phase of my life where I was just watching so many French films and I just loved them so much that I wrote that book I tried and kind of wanted it to be like a French film and and I actually have like scenes in that book where I can think of a scene in a film like from the particular movie and I'm like I almost like rewrote that scene and I put it in my book and I, and I don't do that anymore so I'm I'm not sure like what has changed or maybe I've lost something from that. I feel the same way. I used yeah. to go to the movies all the time. I mean, for me, it was like the big thing when I grew, I've grow, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, and I used to take the bus into New York and I'd go what go see art house films. That was what I did, and sometimes I would take friends, but that was like my son the equivalent of my Sunday night was going into New York to see movies, and so I used to do that a lot. It's just like, my life as a dog was the first movie I saw. It just blew my mind. I don't know. It was just so lovely and Swedish and I just saw it like three times and it made me cry and I just love things that can make me cry I just feel like that's really great like I want to be able I don't think I do that soft but I feel I feel like that's such an achievement I don't know yeah no if you can make people like any kind of emo like strong emotion but especially yeah. like a physical emotional response like tears you know it's like yeah. <laughs> wow and I think too about the theater experience with a sense of mourning because I don't think it's going to fully go away. Maybe it'll have a resurgence. But I do think generationally, I look at my kids, they have really not nearly the level of exposure to the theater experience, particularly with COVID in mind, that I did at their age. And I fear that it would go away. And the reason I fear so much is because there's something about the communal experience of going into this darkened theater together 
to kind of yeah. share in this dream time. Mm -hmm. And it is like a secular sacred space, you know, like mm -hmm. an opportunity to sort of shut the world out and like go into a dream, uh, yeah. uh, some kind of narrative. And yeah. I don't know, I have like so much reverence for that. It makes me sad to think that I haven't been to the theater in literally years. It's literally yeah. been years now that I've, since I've been to a movie. Me too. It is sad. Um, we got to go to the movies, Marcy. Yeah, right. I, I, I'm still, I'm still, this isn't, this isn't maybe for a podcast. I'm still in the part of COVID where I still wear a mask a lot when, when I go inside. And I just, I think about going to a movie theater and wearing a mask for two hours. And it just seems so unenjoyable to me that I just, I'm just waiting still for the time when I just don't want to wear a mask inside. So yeah, I got yeah. invited. I got invited by a friend the other day to go see the new David Cronenberg. And I had COVID in April. <laughs> Okay, I'm so, sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, fortunately, I, you know, I, I got through it, but I, uh, I feel like I'm probably okay to go into a movie theater since you have antibodies for a little right. while, but yeah. I also know certain people get COVID and then like a month later they get it again. So I was in the same boat. I was like, you know, my son is, uh, immunocompromised, so we yeah. have to be extra careful. And I'm like, I don't know about a movie theater, like right. going in and I don't want to wear, I don't want to sit there in a mask for two hours. Same yeah. thing. So yeah. maybe as soon as we can get hopefully back to, you know, to a place where it's not, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but if we ever do, I will, I think, start going to movies more often again and support it. Yeah. I feel bad for filmmakers. I don't quite know how, how they're adapting or they're making television. I feel like so many good filmmakers are making TV now. So I want to talk <laughs> to you about the book itself, Hurricane Girl. And you have a character named Allison Brody, who, as you mentioned, is a screenwriter. She has left her boyfriend, who has a swimming pool in Silver Lake. Mm -hmm. And she has bought a house on the coast of North Carolina with a small inheritance that she has after her uh, father passed away. And the book begins, basically, with the obliteration of this house. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like by page two, I think it's pretty much gone. Yeah. So you start there. You basically start with this with this character who's losing all of her worldly possessions. Yeah. And from there, she gets into trouble, basically. And uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a hard, it, it's such an unexpected novel in so many ways. You know, the kind of the adventure that she goes on, the things that happen in this book, it all operates according to its own odd logic. And yeah. somehow you pull it off. But I think about the way like this book might square with like ordinary lived reality. It's kind of a funhouse mirror reality. Like there's so much about it that's recognizable. And yet it, it also feels a little surreal, you know? I think so. I actually read it recently because I had, you know, you write things and then it takes so long for it to come out. And I was really surprised by it all the time. And I got really worried. Like, I think there's scenes in the book where she's like, if I were in a movie, people would be screaming, no, don't go. And while I was reading it, I was actually thinking, no, don't do that. Get out of that house. Like, I felt it reading it. So it worked on me because I had enough enough distance from it. Um, so I was always surprising myself while I was writing it. And, and I mean, the whole idea about how I feel like I've talked about this before. Beach houses to me are unattainable. Like many people have them. I think that's I don't think I'll ever have a beach house because I think they're just economically just impossible. Um, and maybe it's also who deserves a beach house. But so I think that's where I started this book with somebody having a getting getting a beach house and having it taken away. And that was sort of my 
my starting point. Well, and I think, I mean, economically impossible for most of us, but also increasingly ecologically impossible oh, for really? all of us. I, I've been reading about not, not nor I mean, in this case in North Carolina, I put her beach house about two blocks away from the ocean, but I've been reading about people buying beach houses on, on little shelter islands, on stilts. People buy houses on stilts, and they've literally been, like, destroyed before they even move in. And so, but, but what a stupid thing to do, I guess buy a house like that that's what i think i mean yeah. I, I a coastal house in florida yeah. seems yeah, seems exactly. like a short-term investment with like minim, yeah. minimal returns and possibly huge losses i don't know how people are making sense of that but i guess if you have enough money and you can afford to lose it then go for it yeah. but uh i could say the same thing about a desert house like yeah. we're already running out of water you really want to move to the desert <laughs> like, i mean no there's just so many places that feel off limits now that were just dreamy at one point it's really sad I mean, the fires in California, I haven't lived through them, but I can't really imagine what that's like. It must have... Well, so now it's just a normal feature of the yeah. year. It's like a season, you know? <laughs> but it's an yeah. increasingly long season. It's like, used yeah. to, it used to be just like, oh, you know, September, October, right. you know, fire season. But now it's like September through December and January. And, you know, that gets a little bit crazy. You basically yeah. have to wait for the first big rain, assuming it comes before you can start to breathe easier. But it's... Uh, it's a big mess, and yeah. we've got water restrictions now. Oh, you do? So uh, I wasn't aware of that. Wow. Yeah, we can only water our lawn. Like, they just announced it, but you can yeah. only water your lawns on Mondays and Fridays where okay. I live for, like, 15 minutes or less. Yeah. That kind of stuff. So okay. you mentioned earlier, uh, just a bit ago, that Allison sustains a head injury when yeah. a man that she is with hits her in the head with a, with a vase, mm-hmm. which is... Again, you talk about like the odd logic of this book and its narrative, like that comes as a shock. That's like a horror movie thing, you know, where all of a sudden this extremely violent, awful thing happens. Uh, It frankly caught me a little bit by surprise. Like I wasn't Mm -hmm. expecting it. And uh, I'm glad that you weren't expecting it. (laughs) I'm normally always (laughs) expecting somebody to hit somebody in the head with a vase. But no, it it was, uh, it has like this kind of shock to it that feels familiar in the manner of a horror film where you're like, whoa, yeah. you know, and it also is a big pivot in the book's plot. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, whoa, this thing just took a turn that I was totally not seeing coming. And we've, you know, we've just gone 90 degrees here and now I'm, I'm on board and I don't have any clue what's coming next, which right. is always a lovely feeling to have as a reader. You know, as it goes for Allison, this is a pretty serious head wound. Yeah. It's also, and I, I hate to say this, it's also kind of funny uh, in, a, in, a, in a macabre way, the way that you write it. There's kind of like this, you know, she's driving back to Jersey with like a hole in her head, essentially. Yeah. And I was sort of thinking about, uh, do you know the band The Flaming Lips? Yeah. You know, Wayne Coyne, like in, in, I don't know if he still does this, but back in the day, he used to like, during the, their shows, he used to like put fake blood on his head. Didn't know that. And yeah. he would he would like sustain a, a massive head wound basically in right. every every concert and like he'd like sing the last songs of the show and he'd have like you know wow, fake no, blood I didn't like yeah and it, but I was I was like that's such an interesting choice yeah and this reminded me of that this Allison head wound you know this she's she's carrying this head wound with her essentially the whole the whole novel and what I want to ask you about is whether or not the brain injury that she sustains what is it a depressed fracture is that what it was called yeah i think so uh whether or not this influenced decisions that you made with the prose like were you thinking like wow i've got to render this in a manner 
that might be consistent with somebody who has sustained a head injury? And did that require research of any kind medically? I did do some research. I absolutely did because I've never experienced brain trauma. And so I, I just went to Google and I, and I did that. And I also... And I learned about people who wake up from surgery and they're sitting up, like held back. Like I didn't, I that. And and I actually was reading somebody's memoir. I edit people's books. It's like my other job. And and I actually edited a memoir about somebody whose son had had emergency brain surgery in Hawaii. And I wasn't. It was just a complete coincidence. But she kept writing about the flashlight that they put in front of his eyes. I was like, oh, I'm going to use that, which I felt so guilty about. Right. So I had to do research, which isn't something I normally do when I write. But it didn't really affect the pros like I always just want to take credit for all the things that you're telling me that I do but I, I just yeah <laughs> isn't it great when people tell you what you've done you're like yeah. oh yes I did do that of course but I mean maybe I can ask you this to me like what when, when I wrote people don't talk so much about the scene set in a hospital but but I, I I don't even understand how people sometimes can be doctors because I find them I find hospitals just so horrific and I found them so, like such unpleasant places to be in that when I visit people I just want to get out there's just so much noise and I just feel like there's I mean they're they're completely attuned to making people better but they're not trying to make a pleasant experience for somebody to be there and the beeping I just I felt so I felt so I feel guilty when I visit people because I just find them so unnerving and so I was trying to put that into into the prose for sure. I was glad that you did that because I've had the same exact feeling. Yeah. I think in in particular I'm thinking about when we had our kids. Mm-hmm. And oh, I was in the hospital with my wife, you know, and of course, like they get you out of there so fast nowadays. You have the baby, yeah. and like 24 hours later, they're like wheeling you out to the parking garage. You know, you can't like, even stand up. yeah, I mean, you can't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, dude, can't she have another couple days with some attendance and some help? You know, but I just remember, you know, how exhausted uh, Carrie was after giving birth, and I'm just like, I just wanted to rest. But then they're like, the beeping is constant. People are coming in and out and poking and prodding, and it's like. This is what's crazy, is that I think the number one thing or one of the top things that a person needs in order to heal from any injury is sleep. Yeah. And you go to a hospital and it seems like the entire arrangement is designed to torture you with sleeplessness. And they wake you up. (laughs) Constantly. And I get that some of this is necessity. I get it. Like some of it you have to have, you know, you have to switch the medicine or whatever it is and there's just no way around it. But like... Yeah, you'd think they might like close the door, build some machines that only beep out in the hallway, give people yeah. quiet time, like respect the people's need to sleep, the patients need to sleep, but it just misses the mark too often. So yeah. And then it's also just depressing. Very depressing. I yeah, I can't even understand it. Um, they wake you up if they want. You want to have your like your lunch order. They wake you up so you can order your food. There was actually, I mean, this is something that I can just say that was autobiographical. If you knew me that. Um, I mean, I got all of this information really from visiting my father in the hospital when he was dying. And it was just such a terrible place. There literally was construction in in the hallway when I went to go say goodbye to him. Like there was like jackhammering noise. I couldn't Ugh. even believe it. Ugh. So I don't know, but I kind of took all that information and you don't even know when you're going to use it. And three years later, I put it in a book and, and I feel like that's a little bit what life is like. I mean, maybe that's like follow material. But anyhow, yeah. So um, I just kind of took all the experience of how awful it was to visit him and I put it in my book and I made it her experience, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm glad, you know, and it's like, I know that nurses and doctors do heroic work. They do. I don't want to. I don't know. I don't know how they do it in those circumstances. To tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just like the like. But it, like you talk about food, the meals, and f- this is another oh, thing. God. You need sleep. 
to be healthy yeah. and you need good food to be healthy. These should be fundamental uh, <laughs> truths of the medical profession. But yet I go, I remember being at the hospital, like I've, if you want to go to a depressing hospital, go to a children's hospital sometime. Uh, I've spent, right, yeah. yeah, I've spent some time in, thankfully not for anything um, super, super serious, but like I've had to spend a week in a children's hospital with my son before and basically living there and it was also during covid oh my goodness yeah, yeah. so you can imagine how insulate you know insulated it was but yeah. you know you'll just like walk down the hall and see you'll like just be walking past a room i remember seeing some poor kid who just was like really born with a lot and he was like having a full seizure and there were like three nurses trying to kind of like stabilize him and then like you'll take take a left and go down to the elevator and you'll, the elevator doors will open and there'll just be a mom with her like hands covering her face, just like weeping in the elevator. And you're just like riding down, just like, you don't know what to say, you know, just like you see awful things in a children's mm -hmm. hospital. Yeah. And then you think about the nurses and doctors who work there and what they must deal with daily. Yeah. It's unthinkable. Uh, and then I'll go downstairs to get some food and uh, it's like fast food yeah. <laughs> there's like it's like there's like a sabaro pizza and like a right. panda oh, really? i mean i don't know but it's like the same thing and you're like once i was in i was in a hospital once in austria of all places and it literally was like a mall in the basement of the hospital there so it was like a whole city it was so big so yeah i mean but it's like you know really is this going to make people well to be eating uh like panda express in their hospital room but i yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the answers are, but it feels yeah. like there should just be like a, a farmer's market in the hospital. <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but that might be, I don't know, maybe that's the yuppie in me talking, but I feel like but it's health. It's healthier. We need fruits and vegetables and good foods for people who are sick. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about the universe of Marcy Dermansky novels. Mm -hmm. um, I will confess that I haven't, I don't think I've read, I haven't, I'm not a completist yet, but I have oh. read uh, Bad Marie, the Red Car, Hurricane Girl. I think that's those are the three that I've read. That's good. You missed Twins and Very Nice, I think. Okay, yeah. On my list. On my list. I'll get there. Okay. But I want to point out that I am noticing some recurring motifs in your yeah. work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't think this will be a complete list, but I'm going to give you some things that I've noticed. Okay. Red Cars. That was my hugest Easter egg in this book, right? Yeah, I was like, okay, but I, you have a novel called The Red Car. I loved putting that red car in, in this book. And, and, and honestly, if you really are paying attention in the red car, I never say what kind of car it is. And that drove people crazy. They all wanted to know what model of car it is. But if you read this book, I kind of give it away. Wait, like no, she's, yeah. I'm trying to remember what it is. <laughs> It's nothing, it's nothing that interesting. It's a funny thing. It's not an interesting car, which is why I didn't say what it was in the book. But I say what it is in the, the red car that she rents is essentially the red car of the red car. And that was really to please me. But there are some people who are catching it. So that yeah. was not a coincidence. I knew what I was doing there. Sometimes I don't know. This time I did. I feel like this is the thing that filmmakers do more often yeah. than writers of fiction, where they... Right. Like I'm thinking of Tarantino. He's got all these Easter oh. eggs in his movies. Yeah, I'm sure. This they're... was the first time I've ever really experienced doing that, and it was really thrilling. Okay, so. but I mean, but no, because there are there are swimming pools in multiple novels of yours. Oh, yeah. Swimming is a huge thing for you. Like not only as a writer of fiction, but I think you're a you're an avid swimmer in your life, right? Yeah, like today. Today was very. Today's my birthday. I think I told you. So it was happy really birthday. 
Thank you. I had to. I swim on my birthday. That's what I do because it's early in June and it's usually warm enough. And so, I I I managed to meet people. I wouldn't even consider them friends, but I I actually posted to them as like being a supporter of the arts, and they let me go swim in their pool on weekdays when their children are in school until the until my public pool opens because the pools don't really open every day until till July. So so I was able to go swimming. It's just happiness making. And I find it strange to me. I'm so I like if this is how things are for me, I don't know why they aren't so for other people. I don't understand why more people don't join the pool and don't go swimming and, and I'm constantly trying to convince other parents to join the pool. I'm like, why aren't you going swimming this summer? But so I put it in my fiction and I put it in and it's part it's a huge part of my real life. So why does it make you so happy? I don't know. There's something about being underwater that just feels so good. I do remember when I was pregnant, I belonged to a gym and I just felt weightless while I was swimming. It was just this incredible thing about how it's sort of, it just feels just so lovely. I don't know if you have a headache and you go underwater. And, and one of the things that I did during COVID, which was really like the best thing, sometimes people ask you what's the best thing you did, is I was worried that um, that the, pub, the pools weren't going to open. And they, they did, but not for a long time, is I took really expensive private lessons in somebody's swimming pool just so that I could go swimming. And she really improved my stroke. It was like unbelievable. She told me to put my arm in in a different place and suddenly I was gliding longer and like my swimming just improved. It was just wonderful. So that was a funny thing that happened. I love to swim too. Yeah, oh good. Yeah. I like to be in the ocean. Yeah. I don't I, ca- I don't care. I mean, I can I'm sort of afraid of sharks in like a natural human way, but like yeah. I'm willing to accept that fear. Like I, in cold I, water, if, if you have to, if you have to, it's worth it. It's worth it. Just everything changes. Yeah, the ocean is just so like it's exhilarating jumping through waves. I feel like. So. Yeah, I like to boogie board. That's what I've gotten oh. into in my midlife, which I, you know, I feel like somewhat inclined to apologize for because it's not as <laughs> not as cool as surfing. <laughs> oh, I but, don't do either. I just like to be in the water. I once went water skiing. I'm like, what's the point of this? You're on top of the water. So. Yeah, you want to be in it. It's like maybe yeah. that's there's something primal or you know, it's like yeah. a replication of the experience of being in the womb or something. But it's just yeah. lovely to swim, and yeah. it's great exercise too. Yeah. Uh, it's a great way to be healthy, and I think, you know, as I get older. Oh my God, I would love to eventually be able to have a pool so that I could uh, stay healthy because it's an, it's an exercise that you can do for a long time. You know, like there are certain yeah. things you do in your youth that you can't do as easily as you get older, but swimming you can do. It doesn't hurt your bones. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. easy on the joints. Yeah. Totally. Um, so another thing that I've noticed as a recurring motif is uh, in your work, not just, you know, not just in this book, but in others, is violence against women. Uh, this is a recurring theme, and I've, I saw yeah. it in. I think it was mentioned in the red car. Yeah. Right there was a there was a bad boyfriend in the red in the red car, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Was. Uh, yeah. um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember bad Marie. My poor memory is uh, going to fail me. But can you just talk about that? I'm like I'm interested. Like this is something that's a concern of yours in your fiction. I guess it's a concern of mine. I mean, I don't. <laughs> It's a funny. It's like I do have trouble talking about it, and it's not. Um, it's not really stemming from a particular trauma that I, I've experienced. But I guess, I guess relationships are. I mean, in, in this book, I sort of hint at the Me Too movement, and I, and I mention Ashley Judd, and I think 
I think there's just so many, like, in this book, for instance, my agent was very much like, all the men are terrible. And I'm like, no, I really like Danny Yang. Danny Yang is a doctor that Allison Onion has a romantic relationship for. I'm like, he's so wonderful, and I was happy that she was with him. I think she was initially with him because he had a swimming pool. But, um, <laughs> which he is, was, he was. Which is, which is a, there's a, I can think of worse reasons to be with somebody. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think they would have ever gotten together if he didn't have a pool on his roof. But then he was great for her. So I, it's not like I want to make, like, 100% universal declarations of, of anti-maleness because I don't feel that way at all even a little bit um but I guess I'm more interested in writing in female characters it's just a, it's just true and sometimes I think that's because I don't work that hard in my writing I have written male characters I had two male points of view in very nice and it was fun but I guess that comes less naturally to me and so and I, I guess I do feel like violence against women is sort of statistically it's it, it's out there and so it, it well, and it's yeah. al- it's also one of these things that I don't know. For me as a reader, it's kind of shocking. You're just kind of like, yeah. oh, and like it's shocking, even though it shouldn't be. It, it's as a woman, by the way, when when terrible things happen to you, it's so shocking. It's like unbelievable. It's like just the same as having a vase crasher on your head when somebody hurts you that you love. So I mean, I guess that's it's supposed to be shocking when I write about it. Yeah, yeah, I know, but it's like you like statistically though it shouldn't be, and yet then it happens on the page or on the screen or in real life. And it's like, what? You know? yeah. yeah. I guess I almost had, had the, I had her attack to like serve the plot to move the plot forward, but I didn't really think about it in those terms. Do you know what I mean, like sometimes I feel like I wasn't, I wasn't conscious of what I was doing. Well, yeah, it's funny. You said earlier in the conversation, like briefly, you were like, yeah, people have been telling me that like I wrote about trauma, you know, and like I didn't, you weren't thinking about it explicitly oh. in those terms as you were going. Yeah, right. So what were you thinking about? Like, what was the, what was explicit? You were like, I want to tell a story about like a horror, like I want to work on horror tropes or was it, I want to do a kind of an odd romantic comedy or did you not even know? You're just feeling your way through line by line. I really was feeling my way through line by line and I, and I really, yeah, I don't think I knew any, and I don't think this is surprising of me for any of my books. I don't really I don't know. And I love, I actually really appreciate having people come afterwards and telling me what I did. And then I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I meant to do. I do that all the time. But I think it's almost like, I mean, I live my life. Like it's sort of like every day I wake up, I feel like I'm recreating life again. It's so strange. I think it's part of not having a full-time job and like every day I wake up and I have to write a list. Like this is what I'm going to do today. And I check things off, but it feels like I should know what I'm going to have for lunch every day. You know what I mean? I'm still sort of surprised that, that I have to figure it out every single day. I think I have to make things easier at a certain point, but I think with writing, it's just like I'm figuring out my novel every day the character goes through, but it's really in, in novels. I think it's so much more important to jump through time. Like in this one, this book happens in a very short compressed period of time. But otherwise, I think it's really good to, like, and I love that about writing. You can just jump ahead a month or you can jump ahead a year. You can play with time and you can make things. I think when you write, you want to make things a lot more interesting than real life is. Like, real life is really dull, you know. Yeah, you know what I read the other day? I was reading Twitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name check her. It was Amanda Fortini. Do you know Amanda Fortini? I know I know who she is. I know I even follow her, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know her either. I've never met her in my life, but I follow. Like I feel like I know her because I've been reading tweets by her for a long time. And the yeah. algorithm, I feel like the algorithm bequeaths certain people to me that I don't know, but yet they for some reason this is what Twitter has determined I should be reading. You know, and uh, anyway, she was just talking about a conversation that she had with a writing 
teacher of hers back when she was just beginning as a journalist. And she kind of got an assignment. It was like her first big assignment and she wrote it. And then she showed it to her teacher to say like, what do you think of this? And he was basically like, there's not much insight here or energy in it. You need to rewrite it. Yeah. And then I think this teacher was like, you know, writing is a performance. You have to make this, it was basically saying like, make this better for the reader. Okay, um, that sounds good to me. I mean, I know it can be so crushing and sometimes writing teachers can just be wrong and they can, and they can also be right. I love it when they're right. Do you know what I mean? I hate, I hate hearing stories about how teachers will just crush all the hope out of, out of a writer. And I never want to do that to somebody else. No, no, this, she was, a, she was writing this as an appreciation, you know, good, remembering, but that, just that line, like this is a performance on the page. Yeah. that you're making I mean, one of my, my writing teachers in graduate school frederick bartholomew it kind of blew my mind at the time he's like why don't you start your books not just to me he tells everyone on, on your first line like if this is somebody's like 50th anniversary party why wait till like the middle of page two tell us on the first line and so i do try to do that in my books like the first paragraph it's already starting like you don't want to take your time and that's not because people tell you that an agent reads the first three pages, it's because that's what's better for books. So you have to start right away. Yeah, and Hurricane Girl definitely does that. Yeah. It's like yeah. this staccato beginning. I want to say it's like three independent lines, or I, I wish I had a better memory. But it's like yeah. Alison Brody bought a beach house. Mm-hmm. She was, yeah. what do, I forget what it is, but it's a great end. You know, it's a great beginning, and it brings you yeah. right in, and it, it lays down the stakes plainly. Yeah, and I always, always want to do that. So I do have some intention. That's good to know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, <laughs> yeah, that's a good lesson. Drop people in the yeah. middle of the in the middle of the river. You know, no no sense starting things on the on the shore. You know, yeah. you you want to get people into it right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as I continue this conversation with you about recurring tropes, I just yeah. I'm just curious, but like poodles. <laughs> I grew up with standard poodles. Yeah. Okay, so you yeah. you have affection for poodles. Yeah. Yeah. Sea lions I've put into two novels, and so... Pelicans? I was going to say sea creatures are a big figure. You like the sea. I do like the sea, and and I went to Miami about four years ago. I haven't been on a lot of trips, and so I what I realized, because I put Miami in my novel and I put pelicans in my novels, is that I really do need to take more trips, because where do we get our material from? So, yeah, I haven't been traveling enough. So. I feel like travel is as fertile as it gets like for the imagination like it's just like these big huge sense impression experiences especially when you're in a place that you've never been to before where it's all new you know and that kind of like makes the world new in this really overt way like that can be really helpful as a writer uh it just kind of breaks you out of yourself i think so too where do you want to go what's on your what's on your list I mean, I do want to go to Iceland, which is like all about swimming and um, what in those hot springs, kind of. Thing? Yeah, yeah, I would love to do that, and I've just seen pictures. Um, and then I don't know. I feel like as I get older, and it's really it's something I want to fight against. Is I feel like traveling has just been so stress and p- provoking, inducing for me that I've been wanting to travel less. Like it feels just much easier not to have to go to an airport, and and I don't want that to be who I am. It's something I actually want to fight against. Yeah, I just I want to be able to keep going and keep yeah. exploring and yeah. not be somebody who's like, you know what, I'll just stay home and watch another limited series. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is, what the, I feel like the world is sort of designed f- for that. It's like, it's you know, with COVID and with all the different stressors of life, it feels like that's what all of it is sort of pushing us toward. It's like, I'll just stay in. 
Yeah. I'll just sit here and watch another show. That can't be the answer. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want that to be the case. So we'll see what happens. I'm not sure. Last thing I'm going to ask you about okay. tropes, because you, you, you like animals, is uh, cats. Because cats, ca cats figure uh, yeah. very much into Hurricane Girl. Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking about the standard poodle thing. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, is Marcy, like, where where are you on the spectrum of dog person versus cat person? Are we experiencing a... I've completely, I've done a complete, like, 180. I used to be a dog person, and I grew up with dogs, and they were so important to me. And I'm going to gain readers and lose readers when I say I really don't have much patience for dogs anymore because they're just so loud. They're so loud. I just want old golden retrievers to like come and like pet, but I don't want dogs to bark at me and I don't want them to jump on me. And I have two cats now because my daughter really wanted cats. And it's just ridiculous how smitten we are with our cats. We're just over the top silly. We just love our cats so much. And we talk about our cats and we point at our cats. And those are, those are my cats in the book. Like I didn't even try to change them. They're orange and white. And one is really big and one is less big. And the, I put them in the book because they just, I just wanted to, I just feel like having touchstones. And so I actually think that this is my first book with cats. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm going to, I'm going to make a prediction here. I'm going to okay. slide my chips in, onto this, into All the right. center of the table and I will wager that there will be more cats in yeah. future Marcy okay. Dermansky work. I'll be very self-conscious, but I think you're right. About <laughs> it. Yeah. Uh, I also can't help but think of Gibson, the dog in the book, mm -hmm. who I feel like is, and now I'm now like, wow, this is the critique of dogs that Marcy just laid out. The Gibson yeah. is a, but listen, I have a dog. She's actually behind okay. me. She's behind me right now. You see, you right might've gone really mad at me just then. I'm no, sorry. No, no. I would have cats. I love cats, but my <laughs> wife is like really allergic and becomes yeah. like, you know, it's just misery for her to be around a cat. And I think, I guess you can kind of like power through it and eventually you become sort of immune to your own cat or something like the allergies lessen, but it's just always been like kind of a deal stopper because of the allergies. And I think my daughter has that same allergy and yeah. I would otherwise have cats. And then I have a dog and I'm always big on training my dog, uh, to the point where people make fun of me for it. Well, I'm so glad that you do, because I think that's a real problem. That's, if people train their dogs more, I think I would love them again. You know, that's yeah. my argument is that who, yeah. who wants to be around a dog that is obnoxious and is jumping yeah. all over you and barking Absolutely. and doesn't yeah. do what it's told. I mean, like these are dogs. It's like people, I think they humanize them or they project their own emotions onto them. And I'll see it all the time. Like, uh, this is where I really, it really gets controversial with friends of mine who <laughs> think I'm like the dog Nazi, <laughs> but it's people who are like, Oh, my dog just wants to say hello. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, no, I don't want to say hello to your dog. And my dog doesn't want to say, I'm not here to say hello. Like, <laughs> I feel like Seinfeld or something, you know, just oh, like kind of. I, I wish more. I mean, I, bet, I have a feeling I would love your dog. You know what I mean? Because your dog's been trained. And so. Well, I mean. it's like I'm listening to a podcast or something and I'm mm -hmm. walking and I'm walking down the sidewalk and somebody is in, in, invariably coming towards me being pulled on the leash by their dog. Their dog yeah. is completely out of control. And they're just like smiling like, oh, she just wants to say hi. And I'm like, yeah. really? I'm in the middle of, uh, you know, listening to uh, NPR here or whatever it is. You know, and like I don't, this wasn't on my list of things to do was to stop here yeah. and let your dog like hump my dog. For, you know, it's like, right. and it's just because they don't train their dog. Mm -hmm. I'm like, train your dog. Then your dog won't, yeah. won't say hello. <laughs> you know, Such I'm a like, bad list man. <laughs> yeah. This is, that, this is a hill I'm willing to die on. But okay, wow. uh, a craft question that I want to touch <laughs> upon. 
I was reading some of the uh, interviews that you've done, like print interviews that you've done previously, and something that you said struck me, and I want to hear you talk about it because I think writers listening might benefit, is uh, you said that the best way whenever you're stuck in your writing is to switch POVs. Uh, I think that maybe is speaking in particular to Very Nice, which has multiple POVs. Yeah. But is that something that, that carries over from book to book? And is it just like it a... Doesn't, I mean, this this book was... I mean, Hurricane Girl was one POV, but my very first novel, which was called Twins, and it just seems so obvious, is it's from alternating POVs from each twin. Um, but the the first... While I was writing it, I literally got to like page 150 and I was really stuck. And then I wrote from the twins' point of view and it just... The other twins' point of view and opened everything up. And then I had to go back into the book and write new scenes for her. But I mean, I don't, I don't think I don't think every book should do that. You know, every book has a needs different things. But I do feel if you're ever stuck, you can either enter a new POV, and if you don't want to go that extreme, I also feel like bringing in a new character can just help, just so much. I feel like you just need to grab something new if you really don't know what you're doing, and then and that can work or that cannot work. I think I mentioned. I mean, that's the thing; it can work or it cannot work. That that sometimes when I'm stuck, I. I think you just don't want to forge blindly ahead with what you have. I think you just want to, you want to surprise yourself too. Well, I, that makes some sense to me though. Like even in a book where you have a, a single POV, if mm. you find yourself stuck, like even as a useful creative exercise, yeah. if you just did like, well, I'm going to write from this. I know this is not going to wind up being the novel, but I'm going to write from this secondary character's POV today. It might give you a new angle on the material, like literally, you know, and it, yeah it helps you to distance yourself from it in a new way or something. So I see the logic in it. Uh, I'm wondering, because I know you've worked with me, like I, I worked with you uh, on a draft of my novel as an editor. Uh, I'm wondering if the, like how the work that you do as an editor informs the work that you do as a writer. I have to believe it's beneficial. Uh, are there ever times when you feel like it's not? <laughs> I never feel like it's not, and I feel like I must get things for my clients' writing. I mean, it, I mean, sometimes it's the same as with teaching, that it's so close to what you do that sometimes it's really... I'm really bad at multitasking. So if I'm editing somebody's book, I don't want to be writing at the same time. Or if I'm, Yeah, and so that's, that's one thing I found. But I feel like my knowledge as a writer, I know a lot of people who hire editors and they're editors. I feel like as a writer, like I'm, I feel like I'm really good at going into people's work and pinpointing things or saying, try that or being encouraging. Um, I don't feel particularly inspired by the work. Like I don't get inspiration from the work. Well, it's cause it's, it's a sort of like, yeah, I don't know. It's like a, a, a surgeon. I mean, just to continue with our oh. earlier medical discussion, it's like a surgeon <laughs> going in and doing work. You're not going to like come away from it inspired. It's more like you're just going in there to, to get the job done or something or to but I feel like I want to be so careful because writers, I just feel like, are so sensitive. And if I tell them, if I tell the writer everything I think needs to be fixed, it's just like so overwhelming that you can't do it. And I think, like, I know that, like, when when my agent edits my work, by the way, he never he never goes in on a line basis. He just says, "Oh, you need to make something happen," and it works for me. But I feel like sometimes people need a lot more than that. So, but I feel I feel like we're I feel like writers, as a rule, are sensitive or very sensitive, and you just don't want to be too honest with them. I feel, um, well, yeah, I, I had that feeling when I was teaching years ago where my students would submit work and some of it would be okay. Some of it would be really bad. And yet I was always hesitant or I felt it just, you know, I, I could have taken a red pen to it and just gone completely nuts. But 
what I always worried about was, wow, am I, if I do this, I could wind up stifling or badly harming somebody who actually is gifted yeah. and who otherwise would forge ahead. Like the damage that I could do messed with me is the point, you know, yeah. and I didn't want to play that role. I feel that way. Like I feel stressed. Like I feel worried at night sometimes. Like, what am I going to write in this letter? Like, I, you know, I, yeah. Well, but I think maybe your approach is, is the wise one, which is to like maybe try to prioritize and locate like a small handful of big things, you know, the, the yeah. biggest and most important things and to send them on their way with that and see what they make mm -hmm. of it. You know, they might yeah. figure out the rest, you know, the smaller stuff on their own if they keep drafting. And, uh, I think that the way that your agent works with you, especially for somebody who's got some experience and some chops, mm -hmm. you know, and has kind of been, been to a few rodeos or whatever. Yeah. I feel like you kind of give somebody a nudge, like this section doesn't, right. that's all you need. And then you go yeah, in. Yeah, it's all you need. And then, and then I don't have to say, but what about this? I just know, I just know where to go. And so. So I, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we both have kids and it's almost summer. So the last thing I want to ask you about is screenwriting and adaptations yeah. because this book features Alison Brody, the protagonist who is a screenwriter. We've talked about your love of cinema and mm -hmm. you know, this sort of grief we both feel about <laughs> that lost experience. Yeah. I am wondering if you have experienced screenwriting or aspirations in that direction. If any of your work, including this book, uh, if there are plans for adaptation or hopes for adaptation. I mean, I've I've had such a ride with 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 Hollywood at this point because nothing I've I've had done has been adapted. But um, very nice actually went all the way up to having like a a major A list movie star attached to it and then a production deal with Apple TV and then that didn't happen. And I actually have a beautiful filmmaker who really wants who's really interested in Hurricane Girl right now and we're in early stages. But it's so hard to get something made. Yes. And. I, I just want something made so badly, like I can't even tell you, and, and just so much, just 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 to sell more books. I really want more people to read my books, but I can't write screenplays. And I feel like if I could, maybe things would happen because I could say, "Here's my screenplay. Make a movie, make a TV show." But it's all dialogue, and I really love writing interior monologues. Like that's just like Hurricane is just like all in her head. So I don't know. I need somebody else to do that, and I'm willing to give over creative control, like and just take a risk. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I've tried to. Write screenplays and I just don't know what to do I'm like how do I do this like yeah sounds like you could you'd have to write like a Terrence Malick screenplay which is like all interior yeah. all interior and just like walking through tall grass you know like which is what I <laughs> like there's always people just like walking through tall grass to like a, right. a VO or something I should try that uh what about a what about a, a fiction project I know you sort of you tend to have these kind of like you know you have some downtime in between books but uh, is there anything mm -hmm. cooking I wrote a short story that I loved over last summer, and and, I, and people have told me to turn that into a novel, and I don't want to. And I started a book, and I got 70 pages into it, and I just changed my mind. It kind of killed me that I did that. And so right now, I just feel like I feel like I'm at that part of my process. It's, my process is always the same. I have to not have anything cooking for so long, where I just love writing. And right now, I'm just not. I'm just putting out this book, which is great, but I just miss it. So I, I have nothing cooking, but I just feel like I always believe I don't know why I can be so mean to myself I always believe oh I'm not going to be able to do this again and of course I'm going to be able to do this again like of course I am but I have nothing cooking but but 
I do go quickly because I never really managed Brad to get a proper job. So I just have to keep on writing books. Congratulations. So yeah. And Thank I, you. I I'm glad yeah. to hear you. Be, I'm glad to hear you be candid about that part of the process because I think that it can be dispiriting or disillusioning for people who are in it sometimes because they feel like it's not supposed to be happening. And mm -hmm. I think there's some version of this for all writers, you know, both like mm -hmm. the 75 pages of a book that you wind up going, actually, no. And that's a horrible yeah, yeah. feeling because you've spent all this time and energy on it. And you have all hours. this, yeah, it's like imbued with all this hope. You're like, this is going to be it. But then it's not yeah. it. And then there's yeah. just p dead periods where you're not doing any writing. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It feels like a natural part of any kind of... Uh, creative system you know they're going to be these cycles and i think you just have to learn hopefully to accept accept them and kind of go along yeah. for the ride and have faith that it's going to eventually write itself <laughs> right because writing is just so great so yeah i'll feel better about life if i'm writing a little bit every day so and i and i know that you know i don't know i don't know if you've started something new after spending 10 years on a book yes but. i'm like i'm definitely concerned with not letting the next long period I don't want it to be 10 years so I'm right. I'm trying to guard against that I am working hard on a project right. and uh it's just like I'm in this research phase and it's uh mm -hmm. it's very un it feels unwieldy I've got to start dra yeah. like drafting the actual book uh that makes soon sense. and I've got yeah, like, I've, too much knowledge it can be crippling too I guess I've got a 4,000 plus page research document just to give you an wow. idea <laughs> <laughs> so I can I can winnow that You're down. Yeah. So anyway, um, it's lovely to talk with you and to see you. Yeah. And on your so birthday, nice of to listen to these. So so happy to be able to be part of one of your your podcasts. Yeah, it's about time. And uh, yeah. happy birthday to you. Spending you. spending uh, this much time with me on your birthday is uh, <laughs> I you know I feel sympathy for you, frankly. <laughs> that would be really nice. Yeah. Uh, well, listen. Best of luck with Hurricane Girl. Congratulations. Enjoy your birthday, and best yeah. of luck to you on whatever comes next when it uh, when it emerges. Thanks, Brad. Okay, you guys. There we go. That was my conversation with Marcy Dermansky, author of the new novel Hurricane Girl, available now from Knopf. You can find Marcy Dermansky at marcydermansky.com or on social media, if that's your persuasion. She's on Twitter at mdermansky, and you can also track her down on Instagram and, I believe, Tumblr, if that's still a thing. One more time, the novel is called Hurricane Girl. Go get a copy of this book immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. This is a listener-supported show. The entire archive of this program is made available free of charge, the show depends on your support, and you can do that for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Throw a dollar in the hat every month. It's easy. You can also throw more. As you move up the scale, you can get gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription, I will wish you a happy birthday. I will send you a postcard in the mail. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get your hands on a copy of my new novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It just published in May. It is out there in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I am the narrator of the audiobook. 
if that excites you. It, again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And it is a novel. If you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, please do that at bradlisty.com or at this show's official website, otherppl.com. The email newsletter goes out once a week. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. I share news of the latest episode. I also share an enumerated list of some things that I've been reading online and elsewhere that have interested me. So to sign up for that, again, just go to one of my websites. It's easy. It's free. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. Not sure if you're aware. It, too, is free. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app wherever you get your apps. This show's entire archive is available on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, please search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. It's free, and it helps the show. I would appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you would rate and review the show, that will help this program find new listeners. All right? I think that does it for today. Fun talking with Marcy Dramansky. I will be back next week with more. Thank you.